I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. I really enjoyed your book. I suppose, first of all, we kind of need to describe what a slowdown actually means, because it's really extraordinary that you would write this and then coronavirus would happen. I know, it's just chance, although... You know, pandemic is in the book about six times. Yeah, Because yeah. we knew a pandemic was coming. The irony of, of all of this is, you know, one of the most predictable things with human life was that epidemics and pandemics happen. Of course, we didn't know when. The last really big one was 1968, which we've mostly forgotten about. And then we know about the one 50 years before then. But the other irony is that suddenly with the pandemic, it's become rather easy to explain what a slowdown is. So a slowdown is when something is still rising, but not rising as quickly. And in the case of what we're watching every day now, the number of people dying is rising, but hopefully rising less quickly. One thing, ironically, in my little life is I've been spending months trying to explain to people what slowdown means, and then suddenly everybody is completely aware of what something still rising but going up less means because it really, really matters to us. So a fundamental precept of the book is that it's not a bad thing if nations and the world slow down, if populations decline, if we experience low to no growth. But can you describe what makes you think that's going to happen? Ah, okay. The key thing is first I looked for what was happening and what trends were happening and spotted that far more things were slowing down than we thought were slowing down and then added the subtitle to the book the end of the great acceleration and why it's good because we're kind of geared to think of slowing as bad we're geared to thinking of acceleration as good we know getting on and doing things the slowdown i began by looking at data assuming i'd write a book about what half of human life was speeding up and what half was slowing down and and the shock was almost every time I, i looked at something that i thought was going to be getting faster like the amount of data in the world or the amount of debt that students were taking out, I found that it was actually still rising, but not rising as quickly as it had been. And there were only a few things which were actually accelerating. Things that are very worrying, you know, the amount of pollution we're putting in the air, carbon was accelerating, global temperature was accelerating, air flights were, I say were, because since February, all these things have stopped accelerating, and the number of international students was accelerating. But other than that, everything is either slowing dramatically, like human population, still growing, but dramatic slowing, slowing less dramatically, like GDP growth, which mm-hmm. still on average rising each decade, but not as much as the decade before, since at least 1950. This is 60 years of slowing. And I came to the conclusion that we tend to look for immediate explanations 
And so we talk about the oil shock in the 70s or unemployment in the 80s. And we don't step back and actually say, actually, overall, there's a much longer trend and this thing is slowing down. Why is it good? Well, the population, I think, is the easiest one to say is good. The planet can cope with eight, nine, possibly 10 billion people, might not ever get to 11 billion at the moment. But the idea that you'd want many more billions, I mean, nobody argues for that. Economic growth, we really do produce enough material goods for everybody, enough food for everybody. We're very, very bad at sharing it out. But the idea that we need to produce more and more for those people who've got least doesn't work. We currently have people who are highly profligate. So that also works out in terms of slowing down the amount of travel we do. You know, it's a very small proportion of the population of the Earth that actually flies because it includes you and me. And I don't dare tell you how many flights I've had cancelled in the last couple of months. Um, which it suddenly makes you realise how much you do, you know, if you're posh and a university yeah. professor, even from a department of geography and the environment, how much you actually quietly fly because you can. But every year, more and more people on Earth were being born who would never fly. Most people never fly. If they fly, they only fly once or twice. Those of us who fly a lot, like me, we can certainly fly less. It's very hard to imagine after a few weeks of it you know it's not the end of the world that i wasn't in america two weeks ago in fact it's i'm very very happy i didn't actually go to america two weeks ago i mean that's the thing which immediately struck me was that even though i can see the soundness of that case how it is better if everything slows down with the actual examples you give like our kids getting to their 60s and a pint of beer being the same price it was when they were 20. For some reason, that terrifies me. Yes, because not just you and I, but our parents, our grandparents and their parents and their grandparents lived through this acceleration, which for the earlier generations was getting faster and faster and faster. We actually are the first generation of slowing down because I can remember, you can't, I can remember when a pack of Smarties went up to 5p. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was dramatic because this was the 1970s and it, it was an almost doubling in price. But I have to go back to my childhood for that degree of acceleration. It, it has slowed since then. And of course, if you look at old writers, if you, if you look at Jane Austen and so on, they would talk about prices because they had no idea that a, in future a price wouldn't mean anything. Whereas now, if you're writing a novel now, you don't put in the price of things because it will date your novel. But inflation has slowed down. Interest rates are around the world at zero, slightly below zero or a fraction above zero. And it's been many, many years now. And you can go back 250 years and inflation rates and interest rates were that low before. The strange time is the time of price acceleration. We've lived through the anomaly. Stability is much more normal For all species, it's normal for human beings. If you have just gone through a change, and the book starts off by talking about Charles Darwin. I mean, the irony is Charles Darwin identified for particular species a time when there were favourable seasons, when their numbers would explode. It was very, very rare. He identified it in lettuces, I think, and elephants in particular (laughs) circumstances. The irony was he was writing about this just as his own species was about to increase in number eightfold. This happens very, very rarely. We have lived through it. It cannot happen again for us unless we're going to leave this planet and and populate other planets, and that really isn't very easy at all. So we ought to begin to think it's going to slow down and stabilise. And then the question is, what kind of stable world do you want to live in? Is it this stable world or is it a slightly fairer stable world? Whereas before, when there was growth, 
You could always promise people it might be a bit crap now, but don't worry, your children or grandchildren will do better. But as soon as you're beginning to look at stability, people aren't going to settle for that kind of hope. And, you know, there'll be a chance of getting a slice of an ever bigger pie because the pie ain't getting bigger. Just sticking with the kind of raw economic precepts for a second, you say it's very difficult to make profit on investments when the population is shrinking and ageing. Why exactly is that? Is that just a straight supply and demand thing? There just aren't enough people to want stuff. Well, put it the other way. You know, our population, 1820, about a billion people in the world, and then rising and rising and rising. What firms in somewhere like Britain did is, first of all, they began to export to other countries. You know, we invaded and took over countries that became our markets. And then the populations of those countries began to rise very, very rapidly, not least because we happened to invade them, which broke down the social structures that actually control population. <laughs> um, so if you take a good, like a cotton shirt... The number of people available to buy cotton shirts was rising every year. And Mm -hmm. as you expand into different countries, it rises even faster. When you run out of countries, when trade becomes global, even then, by 1968, population was rising 2% a year. And of course, the majority of that increase was young people's children. So all you had to do was exactly what you did the year before in terms of marketing, in terms of effort, and you would get at least a 2% return on your money on average because your market was getting bigger. And that was the casino firms were playing in, a casino in which odds on the house gives you 2% extra every year. And that's where our mentality comes from, the stocks and shares and investments, from a time when you know, you'd have to actually be pretty stupid to lose money. Now, after the, in, in hindsight, you're making machinery, you're making a mill, anything, the market was growing. From the late 60s onwards, early 70s onwards, people begin to have fewer children. They're having fewer and fewer, and the fools are fastest in the poorest parts of the world right now, which is the kind of stunning thing. You know, in, mm. in the poorest parts of Africa, in Niger, in Haiti, in, in America, the fools are fastest. So your number of young people is already beginning to fall. So if you're trying to sell them shirts, you've got to begin to convince them that they need to wear more shirts they need to own shirts that they can't actually wear and it's not just that their numbers are falling also in the richest parts of the world they've fallen fastest so in the richest parts of europe and in japan people are having only 1.3 1.4 children on average it's not just that their numbers are falling but we're also sending them to university which if it Mm. does anything teaches people to avoid you know when coca-cola tell you coke's really good for your health drink more of this sugary drink you know know, i like a coke occasionally but the coca-cola model of people should drink more coke than they drank the year before so that our profit can increase that's gone there are fewer people and they're becoming cleverer so just to linger on that for a second do you think that In a way, that kind of consumerist boom that we've seen since the 60s, you know, advertising with the kind of acceleration of the blend goods and things that you need for your own status. Do you think that was sort of answering the deceleration of population growth before we even knew that population growth was decelerating? The COVID partly. So if you know the kind of Adam Curtis films uh, and the rise of propaganda... All of that, partly for business, was counteracting the fact that markets were not growing as fast as before. The first deceleration of population occurred in the 1930s. Then you have less than the 40s and 50s. Now, of course, you know, we're going through a Second World War. That was all consuming. 
in terms of our heads. But in the richest parts of the world, in the United States, you were not seeing the population growth that you'd seen before. So you had to find ways to convince people to buy things. The US, they spend 4% of GDP on advertising. But there comes a point when competing with other firms in a market that is not getting bigger and bigger, using an economic model that at its base, at its rationale was, next year will be easier than this year. That doesn't work anymore. You end up having to produce less, having to produce quality, and having to have a model that says that your firm isn't always going to grow. And that is difficult because we haven't tended to accept that situation. We see the economy as a kind of a marketplace where firms fight each other out for survival, which wasn't that unpalatable when your odds of winning were better than 50%, but becomes much less palatable in the world we're moving towards now. And when you say that technological innovation slows down with economic slowdown, is that necessarily the case? Aren't you implicitly accepting capitalism as the only driver of innovation there? Um, No, I should have said more in the book. I mean, there's been lots of brilliant books written about how many of our innovations were actually produced in government labs, in effect, in a form of socialism, or or even how big American tech firms organise their workers. It's kind of not a very capitalist system where they get people to work together. There have been several attempts to measure the rate of innovation in technology, and often they find that the 30s, the 1930s, is when we had one of the greatest rates of invention. On the back of what else can we do with electricity? We live in a world where people want to constantly talk about new inventions. You know, I work in universities where our bread and butter is telling people, give us more money for research and we'll produce you wonderful things. But you just step back and think, you know, the tractor was a big invention. That's only just over 100 years ago. The 747, the first flight was, was 1968. We're still flying in 747s. We've gone backwards in many ways. You know, Concorde doesn't fly anymore. Last year, somebody released a phone that you could bend <laughs> because they'd run out of things to do uh, with phones. I, I mean, I am a bit sceptical and I know I'm a bit biased on this because I was a very, very nerdy teenager. I had a Windows computer when I was 18, 19, before Apple actually produced one. I went to a university which was on the internet in 1986. And that was very early. Uh, Newcastle was on the internet. I had email in 1986. I had a mobile phone in, 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 not then, at the very start of 90. Or or I am a bit geeky. And so maybe there's a bias (laughs) in the book of things that shock people technologically don't tend to shock me. And also when I did my PhD, which was 1989, 1990, it involved artificial intelligence. Because then we were in the second boom of AI. And everybody said AI will be the next big thing. This was 1989. We got AI to the level of sea slug. What we currently have is very advanced pattern recognition. It can recognise faces and so on and recognise patterns in text so we can translate well. And I may be a bit jaded. If you want to criticise this book, this is a book written by somebody in their early 50s. And, you know, that may play a part. But I wasn't intending to write a book like this. I was intending to write a book about the half of things that were speeding up and the half that were slowing down. And I just couldn't find things speeding up. And yeah, eventually I had to change yeah. what the book was about. It sounds like I'm leaping around a bit here, but you kind of move from that technological innovation point into this kind of overarching political fallacy of being swamped by immigrants when actually 
what we're doing is kind of experiencing a deceleration and looking for culprits. Can you explain why in numbers and trend terms it is a fallacy, the swamp by immigrants, and why does it prove so convincing and such a powerful political imperative? Yeah, the, the fear of other people. I mean, the proportion of people in the world who were born in another country than the one that they're living in is pretty small. It's about 3%, 4%. It doesn't tend to rise that much, even though, of course... In theory, it's much easier to live in another country than the one in which you were born. So we've never had that many immigrants. Most immigrants are immigrants to the country next door to the one in which they were born. But it's been easy, always easy, to generate a a fear of of immigrants. And this country has a particular pattern. You know, the British Union of Fascists in 1905 and the, the first immigrants that we really, really hated were Jews from Eastern Europe and other Eastern Europeans as well. We were willing to be that nasty. And then in 1968, Windrush, and then Bangladesh, and then Eastern Europe again. There's a pattern to it. Interestingly, from the point of view of Britain, each time we've actually invited people in. Enoch Powell went out. So we have a particular record. We invited people from Eastern Europe in 2003-2004 when we extended to the AA countries early. That was an invitation. Looking demographically at the world and population change, there are fewer and fewer potential migrants. The first peak baby was 1990. So those babies are now, most have survived and they're aged about 30 years old. There are fewer 29-year-olds, fewer 28, fewer 27, fewer 26-year-olds. We have Europe which is shrinking in many parts of Europe in terms of population. Everywhere across Europe, everybody has less than two children on average. The UK has one of the highest rates, 1.8, 1.9, still not enough to replicate the population that we have. In the southern countries of Europe, in Spain and Italy, and I think Greece, there was a poll last year where a majority of people said they were in favour of emigration controls to stop the young leaving because they had so few young people. And the terrible irony of this is that these southern countries of Europe, of course, were nearest to one of the few places on Earth where there is actually a glut of young people, which is in North Africa. Um, And yet, you know, we managed to stir people up into creating a fortress where we don't let people in. As population falls around the world, as the majority of countries have less than two children per couple, the premium on young people will rise and rise and rise. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, the question is how stupid are we going to be? So people will let people in, but politicians at the same time might well use rhetoric about immigrants to try to become popular. And one of the saddest ones is rhetoric from over a century ago about disease. So, so many of the nasty fascist myths of of 100 years ago were about particular immigrants being particular diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see people trying to stir that one up again. It'll be interesting to watch the extent to which it's slammed down this time. It's very interesting because it poses a challenge to the left, in fact, from two directions. Because A, it feels to me like we often explain these surges of nationalism, surges of hatred of the other, by immediate economic conditions. So, you know, there was the financial crash and then there was a surge of ethno-nationalism here and everywhere. But what you're saying, actually, is that it's not those proximal causes, but it's a much deeper retraction of everything that's been going on for decades. Is that right? Oh, yeah. As we get to a situation in which there are not ever-growing numbers of young people, in fact, dramatic falls in the number of young people in the world, 
It has to change. This hasn't happened before. Well, the last time this happened was after the Black Death. And that's a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> and, and we know that after the Black Death, the price of labour rose and people were worth mm-hmm. more and people could actually move around and escape their masters and find somewhere else to live. So we don't have a person who that's, that's obviously not a very useful model. We don't know what happens as you get fewer and fewer precious children. We do know that, for instance, Tokyo has a fertility rate, I don't know, 1.3, 1.5 or something, where Tokyo has to suck in from the rest of Japan. The rest of Japan is already falling in population anyway. <laughs> so it's like the Pied Piper of taking away the children, the young people from the villages that hardly have any. China, huge depopulation heading towards China. We've built things up until recently. For the generation above us, there was a surplus of young people. We've built up a way of saying, you don't want to let in others, they'll compete with you. Um, uh, and so, so it will be odd. But if you think about movement within Europe under free movement, all movement within the United States, which in effect has, has free movement, that allows young people to move to where they're most needed and most wanted. Uh, but yeah. it is, it's going to be a very, very new situation. You're listening to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the things which will be hugely influential about this book is that line that says to worry about something while it is decelerating is foolish because we worry about a huge amount that is actually going down, not up. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, we do. I mean, it, it, this is the other nice thing about writing a book. It really explains why you need to worry about climate change because almost everything else is getting better. And climate change until January, it wasn't just that temperature was rising, it was one of the few things that was accelerating. And it was accelerating because our emissions for carbon were doubling every 23, 24 years. And, yeah. and the doubling reduced by one year, it looked apolytic. But at least if you know that is the one thing to concentrate on, it helps. And I try to make the analogy. In the 60s or 70s, the one thing to concentrate on was nuclear war. You could forget yeah. about everything else. Nuclear war was such a threat, it made sense to concentrate on it. And we did get rid of 90% of nuclear warheads after the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, even the idiots got it a generation later. And if you want to be optimistic, in general, the idiots get it a generation later. 
so so as long as you have a generation, you know, you can be arguing in one generation that it's okay to be gay, that you shouldn't be racist to black people, and they can be saying that you don't understand and you're wrong. And then, of course, the next generation comes on their day, you know, they on the right say it's okay to be gay and they want to be nice to people who are black. And you're talking about something else, which they say is ridiculous, which, of course, in another generation will, will be normal. We're going through that at the moment with climate change. Young people know it is completely wrong because it's the fear of their teenage years. For people of my age, the fear of my teenage years was nuclear annihilation. Uh, and the yeah. fear of your teenage years stays with you for life, which is, which is one reason why, why we don't do things that quickly is we don't change our fundamental political beliefs that often in our life. We tend to form them as, as teenage children, and they tend to stick with us. You can't get sudden, dramatic political change of an entire population believing something is different. Except, of course, if you scared them witless <laughs> with, with you know, yeah. news about the pandemic. Um, uh, but even then, that only lasts for a few months. I mean, to stay on the climate and global emissions specifically for a while it is again it's there's a huge amount that's really prescient about your book because you talk about the impact of pandemics on emissions and the, that dramatic fall between 1918 and 1919 but point out that it then rose again quite swiftly afterwards now i'd love your insight on whether you think that we would just replay that picture this time around, whether emissions will bounce back? Or do you think this is a reset? Do you think we can accelerate the slowdown? The reason why, well, in general, the sensible thing to say is that for all previous pandemics, apart from the Black Death and very, very ancient ones, but for all previous ones, we have tended to jump back within two years. So the sensible thing right. would be to say, we'll jump back. What is hopefully different this time is before there was an enormous momentum pushing us forward. We were accelerating, we were growing economically before, despite the First World War, which was just a small European war. The world economy was growing in 1917, 1918, 1919. Similarly, for that enormous pandemic in 1968, where a million people died worldwide, where we didn't take any measures whatsoever in this country, <laughs> far, far more people died in this country, many times more than are dying now. It didn't have a blip at all economically in 1968 because we were moving in a particular direction yeah. this time the world economy was already slowing we already had trade wars between china and america we were already had doubts about the way things were moving we had a massive environmental movement with strikes going on we had uh, FTSE 100 chief executives taking a pay cut in december they took a 100 pound an hour pay cut on average nobody noticed very much they're still paid far too much but there were lots of little signs of slowing down before this pandemic hit. And that is the one thing that makes me think that this isn't one we're just going to bounce back from. It also helps explain our reaction to it, the global reaction, because we have never dealt with a pandemic in this way. I think it's a sensible way to do it. I, I, I completely approve of lockdown. But it is a readjustment of what you say people are worth. We're suddenly saying human lives especially really old lives. The majority of people are dying are very old. Human lives are incredibly valuable and they're more important than profit. Uh, and that is what we have collectively done as, as we lock down. And are you surprised by that? Are you surprised by that turn? Because I'm quite surprised. Yes. You see, and I don't think Britain would have done it if other countries in Europe hadn't begun to do it. And I suspect, you know, if it hadn't begun in Italy, in those northern towns in Italy... 
maybe we would have written this out. So far, so you have to say this very carefully, but so far, we may not have as many people dying in this country this year as died in 2015, which wow. was about, yeah, the number of deaths. Only this week have the ONS weekly deaths actually gone over the five-year average for the last five years. Austerity and the cuts at times killed 50,000 extra people a year. We're nowhere near that and we're not projected. And yet, because something's changed, because something's changed in the way we think of things, and this immense fear of the unknown, we've reacted to this in a way that says human life is incredibly valuable. We're no longer going to value a person at being worth one billion or four million. We're going to stop this. It's the Scandinavian approach to road crashes. The Scandinavians have a brilliant approach to road crashes. Sweden has a philosophy that nobody will die on the roads in Sweden in future. They don't care about the cost. You know, it's just a decency. It's very good, but it's quite odd that we've adopted it. If you're looking back in hindsight, it appears to fit with the idea of things slowing down and that you're just not simply trying to hurtle forward to the next economic boom and, you know, just ride the carriages over the victims. We're changing. But it could simply have been chance. It could have been if it hadn't been Italy, if it had been somewhere else, if it had been Sweden. You know, with the attitudes of the uh, the epidemiologists, who's fairly sensible in Sweden. In the past, we've done it this way. If it had been Sweden and not Northern Italy, and of course, if it had been Sweden, far fewer people would have died. Because one reason that the deaths are so high in Italy is is it's the area of Europe where grandparents are most likely to live in the same houses and flats as their grandchildren. And we know that the children and young people carry this illness. Very sadly, sending all the children and students home from university and schools may not have necessarily been the best thing to have done and affects Italy and Spain the most, affects Denmark the least. And we are fortunate in that way. We are, the statistic is, we're 20 times more likely to have our grown-up children living with us than to have our parents (laughs) with us. And it actually turns out that is really, really fortunate right now. I was going to say, our children are less annoying than our parents, but obviously that doesn't work for them. (laughs) (laughs) No, because we're annoying for our children. Um, But also, you know, I mean, look at the way in which the US will or will not deal with this. And the difference, Europe was slowing down much more than the US already, slowing down in terms of fertility, slowing down in some ways economically, or certainly, you know, and and able to be much more equal than the US and less worried about enormous gains on stock markets, which, of course, obsessed Trump. And those gains only only went to Trump and his friends. The average person in the US didn't do well. If you're looking at rates of slowdown around the world, the highest rates are around Japan and China, where they deal with this by the most constricting of behaviour to reduce it. Then Europe, and we're behaving halfway through, and then the USA, which still believes in growth, tries to get growth. You know, there are still planes flying all across the USA. It's hard to tell if those are private planes or chartered the internal domestic flights. Uh, but mm. there's this different model across the three rich parts of the globe. And the part that was slowing the most in terms of population has dealt with this virus the best, Europe in the middle and the USA uh, the worst. So that brings me to geopolitics and specifically globalisation. You know, these questions have taken a really different turn over the past month. Danny Finkelstein is talking today about the end of America as a world force. Paul Mason is talking about the end of the global compact, the end of the notion of a world order. 
I mean, can you resituate us a bit somewhere between your observations of the broad underlying trends and the fallout from the pandemic? I, I can step back because, well, I think I can. Well, as much because I spent six years trying to step back and look at these trends and not be diverted from short-term things. We find it really hard not to focus on the now. Two weeks ago was absolutely petrifying. This week is much less petrifying because you're beginning to see the slowdown in the rises of death. You've got some idea there's, there's a, a lid on this thing. Two weeks from now, you'll feel completely different. And I'll feel completely different to now. You know, it's really yeah. worth keeping a diary at the moment. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to have a sense of it. A lot of people's instant reaction, this changes everything, is very likely to be wrong, mainly because it was changing anyway. But also... With pandemics, you tend to get a short, fast rise, a month or two months up, a month or two months down. Everybody knows that you can get a repeat in the autumn now. The idea that we're going to get a repeat in the autumn by not knowing it is, you know, even from the most useless government to the C team, right? You know, even they, <laughs> even they could get it right now. You know, it's been an interest actually watching the government. You know, they might be slow. They might have very, very bad views, some of them. But it only took them two weeks to catch up with sensible advice. They were just two weeks slow, two weeks behind. You know, yeah. so kind of, if you want to be optimistic, there's a kind of two-week delay between your most Neanderthal kind of free marketeer eugenicist. It only takes him two weeks to work out how to go with what everybody else does. Anyway, uh, global world <laughs> order, sorry about that aside, global world order changing... It was anyway. China was absolutely rising up to the key position. It, it's partly only racism that stopped us accepting this. The first non-Protestant world centre, the, the first centre of the global order was United Provinces in, in what's now the Netherlands. It's a Protestant thing. Then London and England, it was a Protestant thing. Then the United States, again, Protestant Christian. You know, and the movement towards China being more important is very different in the book, I say it's a decentralised world. It's a world in which no single place is all powerful. The biggest shock is for America. You know, what are American goods worth now? What is the American dollar worth? Why would you send things to America? What are they going to pay you back in? And that's going to be hard for Americans to deal with. But it's just a slight acceleration towards a world in which the seven fleets of the United States are not the most important thing in town and they can't just have their way. Or, you know, Trump was trying to tell the World Health Organization off this morning. They haven't paid their dues for two years to the WHO. Oh, really? I didn't know Oh, that. yeah, no, the US haven't paid. Why hasn't the US paid to WHO? It's, it's not just that they didn't want to pay or they're trying to tell WHO off. The US was already sliding in many, many ways. The world is going to watch the United States over the next few weeks and how they talk and organise, and it will change people's attitudes to them. So that's not the end of the global order as we know it. Um, <laughs> but it is a big readjustment. The immediate things that have happened is the world's billionaires have lost a third of their wealth. It's just evaporated because so much of it was held in stocks and shares. Bitcoin's crashed, thankfully. They're always a dangerous thing. The price of gold didn't rise at first. It went down, and that's new and different. We're seeing wealth evaporate. So this is one of the most dramatic equalizations of wealth that has ever occurred. It could be temporary, but it may not be. The value of pension funds, large ones, have reduced by billions. I mean, that's a form of wealth. The way in which somebody like me holds most of my wealth is in a house I'm sitting in, which at some point I will own, and in my pension. Well, 
how much is his house worth right now? You can't buy or sell his house. Um, <laughs> you know, houses are priced partly on sentiment. Houses aren't priced on the number of people in the future who want to live in them. Otherwise, we'd already be reducing house prices because we're going to have a smaller population in future. They're simply based on the idea that, oh, nothing can ever happen to Oxford. Nothing can ever happen to London. It'll always be the place everybody wants to live in. Why wouldn't you want to live in a really densely packed capital? You know, in a, in a way, those, those things begin to change. Oh, and one last one. You wouldn't spend 1.5 million on a house now while you could get one for 1 million or 700,000. You know, and yeah, just yeah, think about yeah. that for something like the London housing market and then for the wealth distribution of the UK. I want to finish on debt in a way because you have this really surprising analysis of student debt, mortgage debt and car debt. And it does feed into what we were just saying about rebalancing geopolitically that, you know, we will be talking a lot about debt in the aftermath of this and whether or not we can afford to still see it as immutable. But you were basically saying we were going to have to have jubilees. We were going to have to have unravelling of build-ups of debt anyway. We were going to anyway. They were unsustainable and the, the rises in the debt, even in the US student debt, were, were slowing down. The graduate jobs that graduates were going to get were never going to pay them the amount of money that would allow them to pay this debt off. We were never going to be able to sell our houses to the generation beneath us at the price that we thought they were worth because they didn't have the money. And even if they could borrow the money, they could never repay the loans. And although you could say all this, everybody could still go, oh, but let's carry on as we are for another six months. And we did. What's happening right now is that people can't pay their rent. So they're not paying their rent to the landlords. The landlords can't evict them. Even if they were allowed to by law, they can't actually physically get to evict them. Some of the landlords are complaining about not getting the rent. But honestly, the people you have the least sympathy for at the moment are landlords saying, I'm not getting the rent. And, you begin to get cool eyes saying, oh, so you can't go on a cruise holiday then, you know. what? Um, <laughs> it's changing the nature of things. Now, we'll begin to work our way out of this, but we're going to work our way out of this through increased rent control or the introduction of rent control in places that don't have them, because you cannot justify. Universities, British universities, we introduced a free market just eight years ago, 2012, £9,000 a pop, any university can take any number of students. It's been frozen. Every university has been told you cannot take more or less students than you took last year. The free market's gone. Yeah. Might only be for this year, but it's gone. The free market into international students, would you fly from China now to be a student in the UK or USA? And remember, you've got to apply now. You've got to make the decision now, March, April, May, whether you oh. want to be an international student in September. They're not coming. That's an income stream. What can we do about that? The universities cannot replace that income stream. What you do when you can't replace it, you could do what we do in the rest of Europe. You can nationalise them. In a normal European country, universities are part of the state. Seems to be inconceivable. You know, we've got used to the idea that our universities are private bodies, private profit-making bodies. But how the hell are they going to survive this autumn without the international students? How can you say that they're private competing bodies when you've told them, as they've been told, you can't compete for students? It's just one of the many changes but if you think just one last one over debt people at the top of society not the key workers not not the people who you know serve you food and the people you suddenly discovered are very useful but the people who are paid high amounts of money as football players or much more importantly bankers for every mm -hmm. top football player there's a hundred bankers getting that money if they don't get those kinds of incomes in future 
and other people paid a little bit less than them have to take a pay cut, they're mm-hmm. not going to be able to afford to send their children to the schools they were sending their children to. You're talking this October. <laughs> you know, So a whole load of things can begin to change quite quickly in a country like Britain because we were so extreme. We were on the extreme edge of Europe when it came to inequality, the extreme edge when it came to private education. We were on the extreme edge when it came to our universities. We were on the extreme edge when it came to underfunding our health service. Nobody else had a health service so badly funded, had so few ventilators. So for someone like the UK, it is obvious that you become more like the European average. That's the way in which we are likely to move. And we're likely to see a bigger change than many other countries because the way we were trying to behave before was so unsustainable and this really does knock it all out of the water. But it was on the cars so, so, anyway. It's just that it accelerates the slowdown. Well, and I think maybe that's the kind of final question, that your book is very prescient. You know, you didn't predict the pandemic as such, but it feels very much of this particular time. So I feel like I'm allowed to ask you to make a forecast, even though nobody wants to make those at the moment. Do you think this will lead to a kind of much deeper re-evaluation of you know, our relationship with growth, our relationship with markets, our relationship with money? Or do you think we'll be seeking to bounce back? I think it will result in this for the UK and England in particular. Not so much for the rest of Europe, where for people in the rest of Europe, family was more important than it was for us. Equality was Mm -hmm. much more important in the rest of Europe than it was for us. But for us, I don't think we're going to forget all the lessons we learn I think we'll be able to remember when we next think about booking a foreign holiday and flying, it will cross our minds for some time. Do I really want to be in that country just in case all the flights stop? And how happy will that holiday really make me as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to a holiday I could do inside the UK? I think for some of us, we'll be left with that particular worry for quite a long time to come. And that is good. That is green. And it may also make us happier because... When we studied these overseas holidays, although people think they'll make them happy, on average, they come back no happier than when they went before, because the <laughs> expectation is so high for how great the holiday is going to be that those holidays were never that good anyway. So slowing down, slowing <laughs> down is good to do. On that bombshell, thank you very much. This, I found it a really hopeful book, and I hope everybody reads it. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.